Hello, welcome back to Slightly Foxed in Hoxton Square and our third quarterly podcast of the year. My name is Philippa Lamb and regulars will be happy to hear that Foxed editors Gail Perkis and Hazelwood are here at the kitchen table with me. Nice to see you both. Hello, Philippa. Now, on the podcast this time, uh, we're actually doing something we haven't done before and bringing you a sequel. Two years ago, we explored the life of Jim Ead, a literary art lover who founded the groundbreaking Kettle's Yard Gallery in Cambridge in 1957. Now, that first episode, that was number 30. You might like to listen to it, actually, before you listen to this, but it's not essential. Anyway, those who did uh, hear it will remember Laura Freeman. She's chief art critic at The Times. She talked us through Jim's life and the founding of his gallery. At that time, she was working on a book about Ede and the Kettles Yard artist, which has just been published. And I'm delighted to say that she's back with us and that she's brought Kettles Yard director Andrew Nen with her. Welcome both. Hello. Thank you. Hello. So, Laura, how have you been? Um, I've been well. I've been busy. Um, I had a baby seven months ago. A different sort of creative project? <laughs> yes. Well, I think babies are a bit easier than books, actually. It just took nine <laughs> months and just the two tiny feet and rather than a thousand footnotes. Yeah, but now's the work. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, and the book was out really recently, wasn't it? Yes, so I went back to work um, and the baby was six months and the book was published two weeks after that. Uh, so May was busy. May was a very busy month. <laughs> <laughs> now, Andrew, Laura painted us a very beguiling picture of Kettle's Yard when she was with us last time. Um, I know you're going to give us something of an audio tour later on. For people who don't know it, can you just explain what Kettle's Yard is and how it came into being? Kettle's Yard now is a house and a fantastic gallery and indeed a, an education space as well and a, a leading contemporary space within the, the United Kingdom, if not internationally. But the heart of it is the Kettle's Yard house, which opened in 1957. And it is a house where Jim and Helen lived for a bit over 15, 16, 17 years, from 1957 to 1973. They were already in their 60s and Jim but with very much support from Helen, brought together all of the paintings he'd been given and he'd bought over a, a kind of lifetime until then, extraordinary life, um, and arranged them in this extraordinary way, beautiful way in the house. There are no labels. You can sit down as you walk around the house. In one sense, it's a 20th century house with 20th century art, but there are also many natural objects, shells, pebbles, all given rather equal billing with great art. I mean, this is the crux of the matter, isn't it, about Kettle's Yard, that it was an entirely different sort of gallery. I think so. I mean, it's not true to say that Jim Ede or Jim and Helen were somehow the first people to sort of lay out a, a row of pebbles and think they look great. You know, they would have, sure. not least, they were great friends from the early 20s with Winifred and Ben Nicholson and the kind of burgeoning avant-garde in Britain. And they were great fans of simple white walls and furnishings too. So they were in good company. However, I think Kettle's Yard has been astonishingly influential on the way people think about the arrangements of their house, about how they place artwork but also how they think about furnishings, but also how they think about light and the way that you might place objects. And certainly pebbles are given a very special place. It's a very distinctive visitor experience, isn't it? I live in Cambridge. I've often been there. It's lovely. It's very domestic. You just go in and, and wander around, don't you? No labels, as you say, no glass cases. I know. I think, And I think as you take people into the, the ground floor of the cottages, it's I think people are still surprised how small it is. And you go in there and go, gosh, um, OK, so there's a living area. There's a very narrow dining area that looks a little bit like a Dutch still life. 
apparently through there is Jimmy's bedroom, and you've got to go past his desk. I always like to say about his bureau, his desk, that this is the equivalent of his iPad Air. <laughs> you know, essentially he was writing. How many letters, Laura, do you think he wrote a day? It's astonishing. Dozens, in his terrible, terrible handwriting. <laughs> sometimes at the bureau, sometimes standing up in the tube when he was living in, in London. But there's a lovely feeling on one level. I, I stand there and I go, this is, you know, December 1957. Very little has changed in this space you're standing in now. And another level, you want to move quite quickly to a sense, and it comes across so strongly in Jim's writing, and I think it's true, that it's a living place, this idea that it's, it's got its, its sort of life. And the life, of course, is, is you, the visitor, looking, thinking, noticing, learning to look. I mean, Gail, I was fair to say quite preoccupied with Kettle's Yacht here at Slightly Foxed, because... I think you feel it's really informed your own design ethos, don't you? Yes, absolutely. I first went there as an undergraduate and I then bought a copy of Jim's book on Kettle's Yard. And when we came to design Slightly Foxed, that sense of proportion and balance and space and air and light really informed the brief I gave to the typographer who did the design. And I think actually that a copy of any copy of Slightly Foxed would sit very comfortably on display in Kettle's Yard. It's got the same, doesn't shout at you, it gives you space and time and pleasure to look at and pleasure to feel and and that's what Kettle's Yard is all about as well. I mean Laura, I think I mean, the key point, it seems to me, about Jim is that works of art for him, I was saying the gallery was very different. They were like quotidian friends, weren't they, mm. that you engaged with mm. all the time, not aristocrats that you looked at from mm, a distance. Mm, mm. And that, I think, that was different, wasn't it? Mm. He, he wrote a lecture where he, which he called Pictures Are Like People, and he said um, a painting by Christopher Wood wasn't a Christopher Wood, it was Kit Wood. A painting by Winifred Nicholson was Winifred Nicholson. He, he tells this lovely story about how in the 60s, when the Tate did a big retrospective of Ben Nicholson paintings, and Jim lent six of them, he says he turned round over his shoulder one day almost to address a Ben painting and we're going oh it's not there <laughs> and then he writes a letter to Ben saying you know I, I missed you you weren't there and particularly we talked in the last episode about when they lived in Tangier yeah. and you know when Jim was a long long way from his friends he would sit there chatting to David Jones or Ben Nicholson as they were on the walls. Yes he very much saw art as a sort of as he says individual living force that the mm. art itself had this sort of life about it but also you need to take time to look, time to get to know the art and the way you do with people. I mean, Laura, this is a bit of a bold attempt for a podcaster, we have to admit. We're going to try and show listeners how Jim wanted people to physically interact with art, mm-hmm. as, as you've just been describing. You've chosen three objects uh, to demonstrate this for us. Why don't you tell us about them and, and why you chose them? And before we start, I should just say, if you would like to see these objects, you'll find images of them in the show notes attached to the episode or indeed on the Fox website. Jim was a brilliant, brilliant talker. Um, And although there are no labels at Kettle's Yard, in Jim's day you didn't need them because Jim was a walking encyclopedia of his own collection. And I loved the story someone told me about how when you rang the doorbell and Jim opened it, he would hold out his hand to take your hand and almost pull you in and up the step. And and as he walked around, he would talk to you, he would encourage you to interact with objects. I'm not going to encourage you to go to Kettle's Yard and touch the art now because I think you might be in danger of setting off various alarms. But in Jim's day, he would almost get you to kind of lay hands on things. So for example, um, Brancusi's Prometheus head, which sits on top of the piano upstairs in the cottages. This is the head of a boy. Yes, so uh, the Romanian sculptor Constantin Brancusi uh, created this very 
dark cement head of a boy. Pretty abstract, hardly any features, just the sense of a, a nose and, and eyebrows. And it lies on its side, on its cheek, on the top of the very highly polished piano, and it itself is very polished. You get these beautiful reflections. Jim would say, you've got to hold it. I'm going to give it to you because you must feel its weight. It's concrete. It's really, really heavy. And I think when we talk about sculpture, um, we don't think enough about materials and, and how things feel, what the weight is. It's not just about aesthetics and what you can see. So even if you're going around somewhere like Kettle's Yard, I think you should be thinking about, if I picked up this pebble, is it heavy? Is it light? It's certainly not hollow. Is it smooth? How would it feel in my hand? And, and Jim used to talk about pocket sculptures. He liked things that were tiny. So the little Godier Bredeshka duck, he used to hold it in his pocket and he'd sort of absentmindedly fiddle with it as he was walking around. Or those Richard Pousset dark rings that sit on the bookcase upstairs that are made of brass and uh, jade. Again, he'd hold them in his pocket. He liked feeling the weight and being reminded that, you know, as he walked around, he was, you know, holding sculpture and art, you know, about his person as he went about his day. And, for example, there's the Godia Brzeszka dancer, which is upstairs. For people who don't know it, what does it look like? How big is it? What's it made of? It's a very elegant, slender figure of a female dancer, um, it's one arm outstretched and sort of pointing into into the air. Um, it's it's very very slight, very delicate. You know, imagine the most beautiful ballet dance you've ever seen on stage. This is just the sort of archetypal dancing figure. Jim loved the ballet when he was uh, in London in the twenties. He um, once put up um, the, the whole of Diaghilev's Ballet Russe at his house. <laughs> um, he used to take his daughter Elizabeth, and, and she said she remembered all her life sitting in a little pink dress that Helen had made for her you know, at the ballet. Um, so when you look at the dancer, yes, she's a sculptor, yes, she's static, but you've got to imagine her moving. And Jim would say, you know, her arm is outstretched with one finger very elegant, and he'd say, you must reach out and you touch her finger with yours. Again, don't do this when you go there, because I'll get in <laughs> trouble with wincing. the cards. I can see it. Um, um, but the idea was, if you're looking at a, a sculpture, you should be thinking about how it's moved. Could your body do that? I once wrote about um, a Rodin exhibition and I was taken to the Rodin Museum in Meudon by a man called Ian Jenkinson who was a curator and a classical scholar. He died a couple of years ago. But he said, always when you look at a sculpture, see if you can get into that position. How difficult is it? Can you twist? Would you wrench your shoulder out of position? So if you are standing in that room with the dancer, why not adopt her pose and think, can I you know, have that grace? And where does the balance fall? Because for a sculptor who's making something... It's got to stand up, It's got it? to stand yes. up. You can't overbalance. And different, you know, you, you learn this in sort of week one of History of Art at A-level, but you talk about tensile strength. And you know, with marble, you can't have something that extends miles out because you know, the arm will just drop off. Um, but, br but bronze will hold itself and you can do wonderful shapes with bronze. So I, I think one of the things that Jim would encourage you to do is you don't just look at art, you have to listen to it, you have to touch it, you have to feel it, you have to engage with it. Well, it used to be Lent, and we talked about this in the first podcast, Lent to students, which I still love. We still do it, do but it's, yeah, of course, it carries on. I say of course. There was a huge no queue, does, there was a massive <laughs> queue up Castle Street, you should see my photographs. Last year we did, no, it was quite slightly that. complicated during Covid, 
every single piece got taken except two. Now, admittedly, they're all prints and drawings and they're all in frames, but people still put them in their bicycle baskets. So we've absolutely carried on the tradition. But it is rather wonderful looking at the book back from the 60s where you can see Nicholas Sorota borrowing a work and you can see who was in the queue <laughs> yes. behind him. Yeah. Um, and Jim, Jim was very relaxed about it. As you, as you know, um, Laura, he would say, oh, just bring it back at the end of term and maybe he'd say, don't hang it over a radiator. <laughs> and the funny thing is, we've had a few back in recent years which never quite came back well, when they were meant exactly. to. I was say, so it was just slightly <laughs> worrying. But anyway, they did come back. So we've had an am- amnesty for, for lost Alfred Wallace's that were borrowed by students. And I remember Laura saying that they didn't come back. When Jim was doing it, you couldn't just have any work of art. No, not any work of art. You had no. a particular group, which was oh, because, because, because the works were arranged. Right. So this was an additional group called the Student uh-huh. Loan Collection. So I it was see. always an additional group. But we've always had more Wallace's than you know, about 40, what, 35, 40 Wallace's on display. Yes. And there another sort of 50 in the reserve yes. collection. So there's always been a reserve collection for students. So it wasn't a case of taking things oh, off I his see. beautiful arrangement. Oh, I see. I thought it he was, was about, completely but, relaxed about what was about absolutely it. crucial was this idea... Well, he was very relaxed about mm. lending them, but it was about yeah. the idea of how do you learn to live with art, not just mm. posters. Mm. Yes. And, it, and that's had a massively inspiring and influent, you know, influence yes. on generations of yes. students well, in Cambridge. What do you Cambridge. Know about insurance? That was exactly what I was Sorry to be practical. I think there is some. I think we do do some sort of simple version of insurance. I can't quite remember (laughs) how we do it. But we've carried on doing it, absolutely. You used to allow the grandchildren to take one of the sculptures to bed, didn't you? Yes, Yes. and the little Godia Brzezka kind of Mm. duck, which is sort of narrow dachshund. And and I didn't realise this until I spoke to Jim's granddaughter, but the attic where there are all those incredible Godia drawings, there's a tiny little anteroom off the attic that had three little bunk beds in it and that's where the grandchildren used to sleep in this little space and she said the granddaughter said that is where you could be messy nowhere else (laughs) but I think this living with art is absolutely critical and you mentioned the Tangier years which feel a little bit strange when you look back at them partly because the war broke them up but essentially they lived in this he built this modernist house on the hill in Tangier in 1936-37 and then of course the, the war comes very soon afterwards and they go to America and give lectures and eventually come back to Tangier in 45 and do this rather extraordinary two years of hosting very bored um, servicemen who are desperate to be demobbed who are in Gibraltar so as the war's over and they'd normally come over to Tangier and go dancing and buy watches and stay in a seedy hotel in the central Tangier and instead they stay in this beautiful white space that's surrounded by Ben Nicholson's and Christopher Woods but what's interesting about that period is that Jim is not buying Jim and Helen are not buying art so much. I mean, they're not buying art. They're not particularly engaged directly with artists. So what it suggests is that the social, the living with, was so important to them. And so I think the sitting down at Kettle's Yard, which can just seem a little bit like, oh, well, that's nice. They allow people to sit down, unlike almost every other, has to be said, House Museum, National Trust Museum. But it's a bit more than just letting people do it. It's deliberate, isn't it, mm, Laura? Mm, it's mm. about getting people to pause also, many of the pictures are hung incredibly low. Mm. You're very obviously meant to be sitting down mm. because you can see the Venticlesons are sort of at foot level. But it's about pausing. It's about living. And I think if you're trailing through, you know, we've, we've been doing tours during COVID and it's really nice. We've gone back to what's called sort of technical time, free flow, which basically <laughs> means people can explore the house on their own once they've been given a little introduction. It's so important for Kettle Cell. You find your own way, you sit down, you pause, you notice things, you learn to look. Going back to the your three objects, Laura. Barbara Hepworth, that's that's the last one, isn't it? So t- tell us which one you've gone for. So the Barbara Hepworth is called Three Personages and it is three slates sitting at slight angles to one another. It's very abstract, but it, it's important to remember that Barbara Hepworth had triplets and, and they sit in the mezzanine in the extension. And when Jim acquired them, which was very late in the day, um, I think they come to the Kettle's Yard in 1970 and Jim and Helen are gone up to Edinburgh by 73. But Jim said whenever he passed, he would run his hand over the polished 
slate because they were so sort of irresistible. They were almost strokeable. And again, it's that idea of surface and roughness and smoothness and, and, and what do you feel with a work of art? And Andrew, thinking about the intersection between all these art forms that we've talked about and the living with art, um, there's music as well, isn't there, at Kettles? Yeah. Yes, I mean, Helen was really the, the, the sort of the expert. But I think when they lived in, in Elm Row, this rather wonderful um, house in Hampstead, um, they had a lot of musicians to stay and pianists and were friend, very close friends with Vera Moore, who was a pianist who became, a, how do we say it, partner of um, Brancusi. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Mistress of Brancusi. Yeah. Um, and so we have two pianists in the house. We have the, the Beckstein in what we think of as sort of Helen's setting room on the first floor of the cottages, and we have the Steinway in the extension. Um, and they were always holding sort of informal concerts. And when they built the 1970 extension, it was partly so that we could have chamber music concerts. So ever since this extraordinary concert with Jackie Dupre and Daniel Barenboim in on May the 5th, 1970. We've been holding chamber music concerts ever since. Yeah, you've got a music associate in-house who arranges it all. Yeah, yeah, since 1970. So it's a big sort of strand of, of what Kettle's Yard is, and I think people absolutely appreciate listening to concerts surrounded by, by art. I mean, I do this rather sort of feeble joke of saying that there are some seats where you can't see the musicians so well, but here, here's the good news. You've got a Henry Moore right in front of you. So you're, you're, not, you're not blocked by a bit of wall or something. You're blocked by some incredible bit of art. Yeah, absolutely. So it is, it is pretty, pretty special. And, and since we've just had the coronation, can we say who was there at the inaugural Kettle's Yard concert and who opened the Kettle's Yard extension? It was, it was Prince, Prince Charles, Charles who was yes. then an undergraduate. And what, what I think is so lovely is he went up to Jacqueline Dupre kind of rather modestly and said, well, I play the cello too in a very small way, oh. but I'm not much good. <laughs> um, and I think it's so charming to think of Charles, you know, age 20 perhaps, you know, rather starstruck going up to Jacqueline Dupre. There's a newspaper cutting on, on the Kettle's Yard website and I think it's headlined something like Prince Bunks Off Studies. I thought, but, but rather nice actually. Yes. He was he was drawn to such a domestic space because let's mm. face it, Kettle's Yard's not exactly like home for him, is it? No, no visually. No, that's true. I, I, did, I did write to Clarence House to say, you know, would, would then you know Prince Charles consider you know speaking to me about his memories? And I got a beautifully worded letter back from a private secretary saying he wishes you the very best of luck in your endeavours, but he has many other commitments. <laughs> but we did get we did get some sort of letter from him, which we published in a little wee brochure for our 50th anniversary mm-hmm. last year with delayed 50th anniversary of 1970 so yeah I mean I'm talking about letters and books there is a substantial library isn't there you could call it a library yes I mean there's books well, all around there's books all around the house there is a very informal kind of art library on the first floor I think in Cambridge terms um, it would be considered extremely unorganised and sort of <laughs> laid back and you know we're talking about a, a sort of city of libraries sure um, but it's very nice and I like the story that Edmund Duval wrote his dissertation on David Jones from the table of the library for example and essentially the books in that library part are the books about the artists who are in the collection but they're also interesting books yes sort of dot around the house you can see I think his Henry James books are there and you can kind of explore it and we now have more detailed lists that tell you you must have looked at them Laura mm-hmm. that tell you something about what Jim was reading in fact you make a point of saying that Jimmy was very quick you know he read Orlando by Virginia Woolf a month after it came out or something yeah. he was actually yeah. quite on it wasn't he yeah, absolutely reading. and there's also in, in the archive there are some of his I think slightly more fragile volumes that aren't on display but that are there yeah. in, in those sort of sliding metal stacks um, and Jim would um, bind a lot of his books so he'd buy beautiful pattern papers by, by Enid Marks and, and her papers have recently been reprinted mm. by Judd Street Papers but he would, he would do his own book covers and, and you know beautifully done and preserved and he was a big Henry James fan wasn't he he was. I mean, he, I think he started reading James as a teenager, um, and he read and reread him. I like that. Jim. Jim was a great Jamesian, um, and 
once you know that, um, I think you start seeing why Jim might have liked Henry James. And you know, people talk about doing a footsteps biography. That's Richard Holmes's great construction. You've got to go to all the places someone went to. You've got to walk in their footsteps. I think there's also an argument for doing a kind of flyleaf biography and that you've got to read the books that your subject read. So I did go on a bit of a Henry James uh-huh. reading jag at, at one point. Could be worse. It could be worse. Um, and I, I think once you start, you see how many of James's characters are collectors, often quite avaricious or unpleasant collectors, but for people whom objects are incredibly important. Um, James wrote a short story called The Great Good Place, um, which is about you know a, a house as a kind of place you know of, of pilgrimage, of sanctuary, something to aspire to. Um, Jim, when he was looking for somewhere to live in Cambridge, I think he imagined a great good place that he would find a Queen Anne's house or a master's lodge. Uh-huh. He didn't expect to end up in four slum cottages on the edge of town. Um, I I have a bit of a theory that, you know, Jim slightly got into Aspen Papers syndrome over the purchase of the Godier estate. I know we talked in the previous episode about... I was going to ask you to remind us about that, because it is quite central to the story. So it's where Jim, I think he... um, he doesn't behave totally well. There's a bit of behind-the-scenes chicanery about buying the estate, um, which he shouldn't have done really as a Tate employee. I mean, today we might call it insider trading. So Gertie <laughs> died in the war. Yes, he died in Tested. His um, estate passed to Sophie Prozeshka, who then died in Tested as well. Um, their effects and letters and the estate passed to the Treasury, who dumped it on the boardroom table at the Tate, which was where Jim was working. Yeah. And he saw all these amazing creatures um you know these plaster casts by Godier. he got terribly excited wanted to buy them the tape weren't really interested but as an employee he strictly speaking shouldn't so he um used a sort of dummy uh, an artist called edward mcknight calfer who bought them from the tape and jim bought them from calfer and so he came to possess them um and, and whatever the rights and wrongs of the purchase i think jim spent the rest of his life promoting Godier, writing about yeah. him, singing yes. his praises, you know, staging Godier in this wonderful way in Kettle's Yard. Um, you know, and he, he liaised with Paris to create a kind of Godier salle um, at the Musée d'Art Moderne. Um, so, you know, he, he devoted his life to, to Godier's it legacy. Was never, it was never about somehow making money out of no, it. It was very no. much about, I think, keeping it together. Yeah. He must have spotted, yeah. maybe he did spot, that there was a book to be written yeah. right from the beginning yeah. there and just wanted to keep it all together. But as you say, you, you, you can think of Kettle's Yard as, as a sort of house of Gaudi Breshka. Yeah. And I often say to people that if, if Jimmy had done nothing else other than yeah. promote Gaudi Breshka, this would have been a significant achievement for yeah. an art historian yeah. or for anybody. Because he wrote a life of Gaudi Breshka, didn't he? Yeah. He wrote a life, yeah. but it wasn't just that. He, he, he very carefully placed works, he gave works away. Mm. Um, he was incredibly, you know, he really championed. Mm. Um, and as, as um, Alan Boness wrote and others have, and you sort of speculate on it a little bit in your, in, in your book, Laura, there is a sort of sense in which Jimmy survives the First World War. Mm. He gets moved, um, you know, he's in the trenches in early 1916, the year before Gaudi Breshka has died. So this sort of sense of, I'm alive, mm. this artist, similar generation, isn't. Yeah. And I've discovered it, and my eye tells me there's something astonishing going on here. Mm. I, I kind of need to do something about yeah. it. You know. and, um, and there's a Godier letter that, that, that Jim uh, includes in, in Savage Messiah where Godier says, I had this dream of sort of seeing my name in letters above a door. And that's what Jim does for Godier in, in, in a way. He, can't, he had the 
dancer cast, didn't he? Because it was a plaster cast and he had it cast in, in bronze. Well, almost everything was a plaster cast because Godier was so impoverished in his lifetime. Yeah, he he simply didn't it. have yeah. the money to do things in bronze. And, and you might say it's not quite right to, you know, do posthumous casts, but it's what Godier wanted. It's mm, how yeah. he aspired to. And Jim made that possible with the help of Henry Moore, who introduced Jim to the, um, the bronze foundry that did his cast. I hadn't understood that. That is interesting, mm. isn't it? I think the casting was two, there were two main motivations. One was to raise some money for, to build the extension. And I think also some of those casts have ended up in other museums. But it does mean that Cattle's Yard has less of the originals. And I, was, I had this wonderful moment, sort of turn really, at, at Mommer in New York when I was looking at Picasso's Demoiselle d'Avignon over here, sort of absolutely crucial breakthrough Cubist work on one side of the room. And I go over to see the sculptural equivalent of what was most exciting before the First World War in the world. And there is Birds Erect by Gaudi mm. Reshko. And I'm like, wow, the original's here. Mm. You know, we have the cast yeah. back in the, in the lower extension in Cambridge mm. and the original's in Mommer, the Museum of Modern Art, in a very prominent position. Mm. Um, and so this extraordinary story that, that Gaudi Reshko, un, not, not trained, comes mm. to London in 1911 and by the time he leaves for the trenches, he's among the most important, most significant avant-garde sculptors anywhere in the world. Part of Vorticism, does drawings of Ezra Pound. It's still an incredible and, and story. Is this tantalising, rather heartbreaking question that had he lived, you know, I think uh, he, yeah. he would have been the greatest sculptor of the 20th century. I think he had more talent than Brancusi. He, he probably had more, oh, he did, did have more talent than, than Mormi. I think Hepworth's pretty good. Um, but, but, you know, you just think, if he'd survived. Oh, we did touch on Jimmy's finances. <laughs> In the previous um, podcast, and the perhaps would it be fair to describe it's a little bit fly when it came to kind of the acquisition of things? I mean, he, I mean as Andrew mm. says, not about the not leveraging them for cash, mm. not for personal gain, but just for having. Mm. He was an avid collector, yeah. wasn't he? I, I think also once he decided that what he was going to do was he was going to leave Kettle's Yard as a complete collection to the university, and that was going to be his legacy. And Jim's granddaughter has a lovely phrase, which is Jim had a passion for posterity. And, you know, he wanted to be remembered, but he, he sort of began to think, ah, oh, well, when Ben Nicholson was young and I could get his works cheap, I was able to buy a lot. I had a lot from the 20s and early 30s. And then Ben's success soared and, and Jim could no longer afford him. So he does start writing these, these kind of rather beseeching letters to Ben saying, could we have something from your middle period? And could we have something from now? And he writes to Barbara saying, oh, we don't really have very much of you. How, how, how about something else? Um, and, and reasonably, you know, someone like Barbara, who at that point is making sculptures for the UN in New York, says, you know, I'm a bit bit busy Jim um, but you know I'll see what I can do and did they anti up stuff yes and, and, and in the end and, and Jim does buy the, the Barbara Hepworth she doesn't give it free he, you know, he, he, he pays for it um, but I think Jim starts to see oh there are little gaps in the collection and how do we fill them in and how do we make this a bit of a, you know, a portrait not just of me and my life but of British 20th century art I think he's very pleased he must have been pleased when they did move to Edinburgh in 73 to have the three personages by Barbara Hepworth in such a prominent position and then have Brancusi's Prometheus mm. bought in, I think, 69, mm. where he did find the money, um, mm. again, possibly from the sale of Gaudi Breshka drawings on the um, Bechstein piano. So you have these, there, there are these amazing sculptural, small-scale scu uh, small sculptures, yes. but they are incredible mm. sculptural moments mm. throughout. And yes, I think you're right. I think he was trying to, of course, the idea of Kettlesell as a single artwork, he's just trying to mm. put in that last paintbrush that last bit of paint or that last just get it right mm. um, I was reading about well, you, in your book you talk about him painting the sequence of rooms and adding 
a bit of black paint so that you get that sense of perspective. The rooms get darker as you walk yes. through. Well, that was something. So Paul Clough, who was the first curator of Kettle's Yard after Jim left, he told me this story about how between the hallway, the sitting room where you would have your tea, Jim's bedroom and the bathroom, Jim would just put a drop more grey paint in as you went further away so that it would sort of enhance the perspective if you looked down that corridor. Um, I, I also love the story that um, Denny Murphy, who was the first secretary of the Kettle's Yard Committee, told me, which is Jim was once walking through Trinity and they were painting the undercroft of the Wren Library and Jim looked at it and thought, no, 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 no. So he rushes back to Kettle's Yard, has a look at his collection of pebbles, picks the one that he thinks is the perfect colour, back to Trinity, goes to the bursar's <laughs> office and says, this, this is the colour you should be aiming for. And how did that go down? <laughs> and, and I don't know whether <laughs> they... <laughs> I think he was a bit of a figure at Cambridge. I think he was kind of recognised and known. Jim's grandson, Andrew Sun, also told the story um, about Jim saying, well, have you ever seen the backs in Cambridge? And, and Andrew said, no, expecting Jim to sort of walk him along the meadows and the backs. And Jim says, oh, get in the car and I'll drive you. So he not only drives towards the backs, he drives over them, along the meadows, through the back gardens of the colleges. And at yes. one point, one of the college porters comes running out, kind of in his waistcoat and bowler hat, going, stop, 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 and gets close enough to recognise Jim and goes, oh, Mr Reed, carry on. <laughs> <Take your time>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he did think, I think, I mean, among his many talents and skills, he, he absolutely felt that he had some, intu- from a very early age, an intuitive mm-hmm. sense of how do you arrange things? How do you place things? How do you make a room feel good and right? And that was his talent, that was his mm. skill. And I think many everyone rec- people recognise it when they come in. But I think one of the things they recognise is, I often feel this, I feel at a distance when you say, oh, one person pretty much. I mean, I think Helen was there, but I don't think she was advising on the placing and she was incredibly supportive. So it really, it does come down to Jim. It sounds very overdetermined, doesn't it? Rather exhausting, mm. the idea of a house where one person did it. <laughs> but somehow oh, yeah. it isn't exhausting because you have so many... You have so many mended pots and cracks Mm. and Mm. there's something about that balance of found objects that are worth nothing in monetary value Mm. and and valuable artworks. And somehow the way he does that means it sort of belongs to everybody. It never quite is Mm. just him, is it? It Mm. becomes... It, it, it is his astonishing thing, but he's done it in a way that's very, what we could say, inclusive now. It feels like it belongs to everybody. It's mm. probably fortunate in a way that he didn't find a sort of stately home to, mm. yes, to you know, I because agree. it had a completely I, different feel. I think it? that's very true, because he liked yeah. abject... When we did a count fairly recently of, well, how many things do have actually been mended, it was an astonishing number. We were like, wow, another bowl or plate that's yeah. got lots of cracks with sort of glue in them. Yeah. Um, so he was definitely, um, you, you know, very much of our time in a way, um, getting away from the sort of throwaway culture. You, you hold on to something, it still has beauty, mm. even with chips and cracks. Also, Kettle's Yard is a house that you can see yourself living in, and it's a house yes. that you can aspire to creating something on that scale, because it's not enormous, it is very mm. domestic. Mm. Tell I me love- about the flowers. I know that he always had citrons by Winifred Nicholson's painting to pick up the colour, and I know about the lemon particular lemon had to be placed to pick up the yellow in a painting but you have a resident flower we have two fantastic person we we do we have a lemon person we have two i mean we must have had many over the years but rebecca and sabrina are our two fantastic volunteer 
people who, who arrange the flowers and they do it absolutely beautifully. So we've always had cut flowers. I mean, that goes, kind of just to make it clear, it goes completely against all the rules of running an accredited museum. Mm. So we're constantly having to negotiate with the idea of being technically a museum, mm. which is important mm. for us because we can apply for certain grants, we can do it on the one hand. And on the other hand, we have works of art which inevitably, even with special glazing and so on and so forth, the light is coming, you know, the combination mm. of light. And that's all to do with trying to hold on to the sense of it being like a someone's actual house mm. and that it would have flowers in it um, and I'm so pleased that we have flowers and at one point when we were when we were making the new extension that opened um, beautifully designed by Jamie Fobert which opened with the new galleries in 2018 I was so keen that we had cut flowers on the front desk not like some rather grand private gallery much more modest and we do I, I, I felt I had two lovely experiences so I did an event at Kettle's Yard recently um, and it was extraordinary to go back for the first time really since the book's been published and I almost felt a bit goosebumpy actually sort of being there you know after hours you know when it was closed um, I was very lucky to be there when one of the cacti upstairs flowers pink and it's so lovely because it presumably only happens for a few days each year and this kind of shot of fuchsia in this very restrained um, house was so wonderful and I think it's a, a lovely sign of how the house does go on living and growing and, and going through its seasons and cycles. But also Andrew took me into the Kettle's Yard kitchen. So although I've read Jim's diaries and read his letters, I had never seen the kitchen, which isn't open to the public. Um, and it felt kind of quite intimate. I thought I was seeing, seeing behind the scenes. But it is now where the, the flowers are arranged. And it's a tiny room. But it does have almost the nicest view in the house over the churchyard and, and to, the, to the portal. Well, you're pushing the Laura's we have, but it was... <laughs> Until very recently, it was actually the very modest space that our visitor assistants could go in and have a cup of tea in their break. Now they actually have somewhere else, so maybe we can think about it. It reminds me of the kitchen at Hoglands, which is Henry and Vera Moore's house at Perry Green, which is also very... Uh, very similar size, I mean, maybe slightly slightly larger. So maybe maybe we'll. I'm always I'll fascinated add it to the list. by kitchens. <laughs> I think mm. so. Maybe you should think about it. We will. <laughs> we will think about it. <laughs> Presume the kitchen was where Helen made her marmalade. Exactly. Yes. By yes. the batch. In forty pound batches. Yes. yes. Goodness. And the tea Georgia. that nobody can the tea that nobody can decide which kind of tea it was. <laughs> yes. It's so funny in your book. It's brilliant. Yes. Yes. And Jim always burnt the toast. Yes. 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 Yeah. I did. I did, I did feel for Helen rather. I must say, <laughs> especially when she wasn't well. And everyone was traipsing through the house. Although I I do think that there is this very nice uh, letter from Jim to David Jones describing their very, very first night at Kettle's Yard when they move in and the house isn't quite finished. And the first thing Jim does before he hangs a single painting is he hangs two coconut bird feeders in the trees outside Helen's window you know those coconut shells that you fill with lard and and seeds and the idea was that Helen could lie in her bed when she was having her rest and she'd be able to watch the birds outside so I thought I think probably he did put Helen through the ringer occasionally but I I think he looked after her away well her her bedroom is absolutely the the bedroom wasn't it in that in the cottages that wonderful view over St Peter's Church Tell us about the church, Laura, because Jim obviously it was next. It's next door. I've never been in it, but it's and I sort of adopted it. He 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 did adopt it, and he used to go. So um, he'd open the house at two. Tours will two to four. If he took a shine to you or you to him, you could stay on for tea. And then at six o'clock, he'd say, "Right, everybody out. It's my. I've got to go and ring the Angelus bell at the church," um, which is what he would do. But he did the flowers in the church. He would sweep the spiders out of the font. You know, he he looked after it. Was it a sort of working? church when Jim arrived? Or no, it hasn't no. been for a long, long it's time. It's still tiny. It belongs to the church's conservation trust. And in the late 50s, the, the roof was collapsing and Jim sold his 
fish, the fish by Brancusi that he yes. bought in the 1920s and was then worth a lot of money to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. And with the money, he did two things. Now, you can correct me, Laura, if mm. I've got this wrong, but he did two things. One was he mended the roof of St. Peter's, so he gave some money towards it. And the second thing was he set up a travelling scholarship for students in university to be able to travel abroad. Mm. And the travelling scholarship still continues. And it's very interesting to think that at a particular moment, and then what happened is we have a, a, essentially a cast or a, a kind of pastiche in a way of fish in the house. Mm. So what's interesting is he was prepared to have, if you like, an inauthentic piece in the house on this occasion because it mended the roof and it allowed students to have the experience he'd had, which is travel. He had a very international outlook. But the, but the church, of course, is also relates to the notion of Jimmy and his sort of constantly changing idea of spirituality. Yeah, and, and, and just it's lovely that you mentioned the Brancusi Scholarship because I spoke to a couple of chaps who'd been architect undergraduates and who were the first recipients of the first round of Brancusi Scholarships, and, and they all went around the States. Uh, and they said, well, we, you know, whatever city we'd be in, we'd go to a Brancusi in whichever art collection, whether it was Boston or New York, and sort of, you know, thank our fairy godmother because it was Brancusi who'd made it possible. Mm, yes. I think I'm going to wrap this up because I've got the strong sense we could sit around this table. Chatting <laughs> don't don't this get me started. <laughs> but I do just want to ask Andrew about collecting because this is Jim. He is innately, first and foremost, a collector, isn't he? And I know you think of it, you know, it's an expressive action. Am I right in saying that you heard Elton John talking about this recently? Well, there are t- two thoughts I have. One is that when I arrived at Kettlesod in 2011, 2012, my first sense was that Kettlesod is not simply about, the sort of as, as Nick Sorrow just described in the first modern curator at the Tate, and that's where it all comes from in a sense. It's also about his experience in the First World War and the sense of the kind of chaos of war, the horror and the chaos, the sort of things flying everywhere. Something about the way he places all these objects he collects objects and places them is about holding the world it's about pausing and about the placing is about pausing and the sort of energy between objects which again quiet and quiet so i think that's one side of it and i think the other side is just yes i just saw an interview with elton john i'm probably the last person to have noticed this rather obvious notion and idea that those who collect and it could be collecting anything it's not really about money again it could be about collecting pebbles is a sort of rather safe thing to be doing. It's a sort of otherness of yourself, that if you collect something, they can't... Well, I think in this Elton John interview, essentially, his answer was, well, I collect because objects can't hurt me. And it linked to the conversation about Elton John's childhood and the various traumas Elton John had had at various points. And it was very moving and rather extraordinary, the idea that you collect things as a sort of safety, as a sort of means of feeling safe. A little hedge against the world. Yes, yeah. exactly. And I do think there's an element of that Definitely about people have often talked about Kettle Child as a sanctuary. But I think what's so extraordinary and so remarkable is that Jim did not create a sanctuary that was just for himself. It really feels as though it's for everyone and he kind of gave it to the world. Slightly Foxed is an independent publishing house based in East London. It was founded 20 years ago by Gail Perkis and Hazel Wood with a quarterly magazine for literary nonconformists highlighting an eclectic mix of lost and forgotten books. The contributors are equally eclectic. Some are distinguished authors, journalists or academics. Others, though, come from very different walks of life. Now, Slightly Fox has a global readership in over 90 countries. As well as four printed issues a year, a subscription opens up a world of good reading with access to the full digital archive of back issues. That's more than a thousand articles to explore. And members also receive discounts on books and special offers from partner organisations. All this for just £56 a year for readers in the UK and Ireland and £64 overseas. And if you're age 30 or under, there's a 10% discount. 
You can find more information, sign up, or buy a single trial issue of the magazine by visiting the website, foxquarterly.com. The web address and other relevant links are also in the show notes on your podcast app, or if you would rather speak to a human being, please telephone the office on 020 0258. Thank you. Um, time for another of our book lovers' days out, and really, where could it be but Kettle's Yard? Um, Andrew, I did say earlier you tell us a little bit more about the gallery. We've talked about it, obviously, at length. But it is a very idiosyncratic visitor experience, isn't it? Yes, you leave your bags behind our wonderful front desk, again designed by Jamie Fobert Architects in 2018, and you're taken back outside the building, a little bit unusual perhaps, and you're taken up these steps past the churchyard, and one of the group will be asked to ring the bell, which is a, a cork, like a fishing cork. You feel as though it must have surely come from St Ives in Cornwall. And as you ring the bell, you hear the bell ring. And I'm trying to remember, Laura, where the bell came from, but I'm sure it links well, it, to... It's a servant's bell, so or from something, a back corridor yes. of a stately home Exactly, somewhere. exactly. So you hear the bell ring. So it's very unlike a museum. You've got these big brown doors. You go in, you're welcomed by one of our wonderful visitor assistants, and you're given a little bit of history and story and told you can take photographs, you can sit everywhere, and you're already noticed yourself in quite small spaces with a very particular smell possibly it's a smell a little bit of polished or maybe even slightly musty if I'm honest and you'll immediately notice some remarkable artworks but also pebbles and shells and objects and light and what is it about Kettles Yard that we can all live in flats and houses where there are windows but somehow the light at Kettles Yard is different I don't know what it is is it because you've got light coming from both sides it's muted there's something it's about bright, it isn't it uh, and J- Jimmy I think was it in his BBC broadcast when he talked about a room to live in but he said you know the first pictures in any room are the windows um, so his sort of appreciation of light is so important so I hope people would notice the light I mean it is lovely when the, the sun is pouring in and it casts its light across say the spiral of pebbles in Jim's bedroom which you move into from the little entrance area you move into his sort of bedroom and bathroom at the back and there's this famous spiral of very very spherical pebbles as I often say um, anyone can do this you just need literally months to find pebbles this good <laughs> I found one actually more than months years I think we can say so I found one in Cromer um, last year so and I feel it's my proudest moment so it's sitting in a special little drawer as a sort of reserve perfect pebble I like to say it is probably the most photographed pebble spiral in the world I think it's safe to say so I like to say it has its own Instagram account it doesn't quite but it, <laughs> but it almost does and then we might double back well I think we need to notice that there's quite a lot of art in the bathroom including a massive great what is it a vulture <laughs> a vulture by yes. Congdon yeah. a painting of a vulture that is unusual so I think you did you have lukewarm baths but I often say to people you know you must have art in your bathroom of some description take a risk do it and then you go up the spiral staircase which he specially put in that wasn't there when he the, the slum cottages were given to him he did some amazing alterations and as you come up the staircase you find yourself wow he's opened up the whole of the first floor and you look left and right it's kind of polished floorboards actually we use this sort of beeswax on the ground so polish sounds too grand and if you look to the left, you'll see, or look sort of diagonally straight ahead, you'll see the Beckstein piano. Maybe you'll spot this dark sort of shape that turns out to be Brancusi's Prometheus, this very pared-down head of a boy sort of sitting. Is it floating on the surface of the Beckstein piano? Or is it in some sort of pain? Nobody knows. Is this the sign of modern sculpture? You never know. It's unresolved. Is, it, is the cheek burning up on the surface of the piano or is it just resting peacefully? And it's funny at Kettle's Yard because there's a marvellous Noam Garbo sculpture on the other piano down in the extension down below by Noam Garbo called Construction of Space Number One. You get rather used to the idea that pianos are well-known plinths for sculptures. <laughs> Actually, they're not. This is only Kettle's Yard in Cambridge. 
So as you, 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 so this is what we think of as Helen's sitting room, and then you have Helen's bedroom, which is the one small room that Jimmy didn't curate. So it gives us a chance to do other things in there. So sometimes we show other other works from the sort of reserve collection or other displays. Come back out, you walk past what's called the bridge, which is we were talking about. Cut, I was talking about cut flowers being a great thing, but of course there are plants all over Kettle's Yard as well, and there are most beautiful arrangement of plants. And at first you just think plants and light, and then you notice that there's a Ben Nicholson painting. There is a, now, who is it by? There's the tall William State Murray's, William Heron. State Murray's Heron, which is amazing. And if you look carefully, you can see it's been mended by... State Murray mended it with gold. It's that Japanese thing. Oh, yes. Kintsugi, which has become yeah. very fashionable. You go to any bookshop and there's a million books telling yep. you how to do Kintsugi. And the great story here is that David Jones, who was a great friend of Jim and Helen Ede, and pretty much lived with them in Elm Road in Hampstead. Um, he dropped it and it got mended and now it's more beautiful for the gold. Um, and there's the Neon Hamilton Finley in Among the Plants. You keep going, you go past what's called the Dancer Room, which is a little space off this long first floor. And you'll see Gaudi Breschka's figurative dancer. And so interesting that Gaudi Breschka in his very short life, he dies at the age of 23 in the trenches, but he's in London from 1911 to 1915, moves between figurative, what you call sort of traditional representative sculpture, and the avant-garde all the time, because he needs to make the figurative work to survive. But he's doing them at exactly the same moment. So, of course, there's an extraordinary red redstone dancer downstairs, the originals in the Tate, which is about as avant-garde as you can get, made the same year as this beautiful figurative sculpture. And then you move through to the 1970 extension and there's an element of wow about it because what? You've gone through these little small rooms in the cottages, 1830s, 1840s, and suddenly you're in this, what looks a little bit like a sort of Frank Lloyd Wright kind of house. Actually, it's by Leslie Martin, who was the professor of architecture at Cambridge at the time, but was an avant-garde architect from the 1920s and 30s. Very good friends with Ben Nicholson, one of the architects of the Royal Festival Hall. And he created this very modernist space and the land falls down so as you walk on you're on the first floor of the cottages you move into the extension you suddenly realize that there's this space down below you and you can look over and see the Steinway down below you can see where the first concert happened on 5th of May 1970 at the inauguration with Prince Charles with Daniel Barenboim with Jackie Dupre playing the piano and the and the cello again and at the far end there's the library you come back down the stairs and we're almost there big open space, this wonderful sense of a big open modernist space. And in fact, we just spotted a big white wall there where I'm beginning to wonder whether we could do an art project on that wall for the first time. But this might be sacrilege for various reasons, but it's a, it's a different space. But it's also very warm. There's also plants, there's flowers, there's Lucy Rebowls dotted around. Bowls and pottery we haven't talked about very much, a very important part as well, mm -hmm. from studio pottery to found pottery. And that, that is the Kellershot House. It's actually pretty substantial. I've missed out the attic, haven't I? There's a little staircase <laughs> up to the attic. <laughs> Stop there. Anyway, there's lots to see. It's a very big house. On a practical note, yeah. is it open every day, Andrew? It is open every day except Mondays. Okay. But I should also point out that if you go onto the Kettle's Yard website, there is a virtual tour of every room and you can zoom in on things and zoom out again. And it does, I have to say, give a remarkably effective sense of what it must be like to be there. I mean, obviously nothing replaces actually going. No, but you're right, But if Gail, you can't, so if many you of your listeners are far, you know, far away in foreign um, countries. You, so, yes, you spend a happy absolutely. half hour just walking through virtually. Now, look, before we get on to book recommendations, I realise I have not actually asked about Slightly Fox. We've become so preoccupied with wow. Kettle's Yard. <laughs> what is happening at Slightly Fox? Wow, what's happening... Well, we've sent the autumn issue off to the printer. We have sent the autumn book off to the printer, which is Richard Cobb's A Classical Education, which is the true story of a murderer who went to school with Richard Cobb, and it is a psychological thriller. It is extremely good Ooh. and gripping, even okay. though you know that a murder's going to happen. It's still gripping. 
And I am waiting for the typescript of the next Adrian Bell Countryman's Notebook Uh for summer, which we'll be publishing next May, so that's due next month. And then I start to commission the artist to do illustrations for it. And on we go. And on On we we go. go. Yes, exactly. Book recommendations. Gail, I've got to start with you, actually. Okay. I have just finished reading a rather gripping thriller by a man called Lionel Davidson, who died in 2009, and I think he wrote six or seven really gripping thrillers. We've had pieces in slightly focused on on The Rose of Tibet and Kalimsky Heights, but I have just read the first one he wrote, which was published in 1960, and it's called The Night of Wenceslas, and it is... It's a very slow burn. Its, um, its hero is called Nicholas Whistler, and he's a young man about town without much money, with a red-headed Irish girlfriend, hankering for a sports car. Works at his family firm, who are glass importers from Czechoslovakia. In fact, his parents were Czech. But his business partner thinks he's feckless and has no intention of handing over control. So Nicholas is bored, basically. And then he hears that he's received an inheritance from an uncle, and he goes to see the lawyer. And the money hasn't come through but the lawyer agrees to lend him a couple of hundred pounds in advance and of course he goes off and blows it on a couple of handmade suits and a red mg (laughs) (laughs) and he then you know he's run out of cash so he thinks well i can go back and ask for a bit more and they say well yes you know maybe but we want you to go on a mission to prague somebody has invented unbreakable glass and we want the formula so he's terrified at the prospect. He does go. He survives unscathed. He meets a statuesque Slav with whom he has a fling, gets back to London, thinks, well, you know, that's done. Now I can have my inheritance. But it turns out, of course, the inheritance is a complete fiction. Uh-huh. And he's then blackmailed into going back again. And I'm not going to say any more because okay. from that point on, it is just so fast-paced. Wonderful account of Prague and its sewers and its byways and its alleys and and you really are you know sitting on the edge of your chair by the time you've finished well i'm going to read it because your thriller recommendations over the years in this podcast i have noticed it you are really good at spotting good thrillers quite a number of them have become tv series and things that are in the, well, in the media since then you have a good eye for a thriller that or low tastes one or the other <laughs> well then we're on the same page because yeah. i always enjoy them myself laura what have you got for us uh, this is a bit mortifying to admit in such esteemed literary company um but i haven't read read that many proper books in the last uh, seven months no, and one day. <laughs> um, but I have read Eric Carle's The Very Hungry Caterpillar many times oh, over. Yeah. And I quite like, my, my husband Andy started doing this thing almost from the moment we started reading where he goes, um, written and illustrated by Eric Carle. <laughs> um, and, and I think it's nice to introduce the idea that authors are real people and they exist from yes. a very young age. They're <laughs> um, all being enchanted by that book for years. It's yeah. true. For years. It's true. You'll, you'll know it backwards. Yeah. I, I'm Almost word perfect in the cat in the hat as well, and we've done that a lot. <laughs> I don't think we've ever had book recommendations like that. Recommendation. <laughs> Excellent. I'm really liking that. Um, Andrew, what have you got for us? I've just finished The Dutch House by Anne Patchett, which was rather a surprise, really. I just picked it up in a bookshop and thought, I want to read something by somebody I know nothing about. And I keep telling people, she's actually very well known, you know. <laughs> and actually, it is beautifully written, as everybody says. And it is impressive to write a novel that does feel like somehow like real life. You just want to read bits out. 
the house is the starting point, but essentially it's about um, a brother and a, a sister who are living in this rather grand house somewhere in America, Victorian, I imagine, and all sorts of things happen to them. I suppose it's a family memoir. Somebody said, is it like Jonathan Franzen? Well, much more relaxed than Jonathan Franzen, I would say, having read quite a lot of... John- I love Jonathan Franzen. Um, it is surprisingly moving and surprisingly stays with you. I mean, I don't know why I'm saying surprising. She's obviously extraordinarily talented. Why is it called the Dutch House? It's called the Dutch House because a couple who were Dutch lived in it before the family about whom it's about. And they, they are sort of part of the story in a way. It's not particularly Dutch, I don't think, in terms no. of architecture. So it is a little odd. They just sort of think of it as the Dutch House. It becomes the sort of sign of the novel. But really, the novel is about the relationship between a brother whose voice you're hearing and her sister. So it's, it's, it's a female writer writing through the voice of a man. It's almost like his memoir, talking about his sister Maeve and their life and about their children. And it's sort of very, very low-key. And it's rather lovely reading a novel that doesn't try and do too much. Mm. There aren't lots of murders. There's no, <laughs> there's no horror. I mean, there are a kind of crisis, but there's sort of crisis that happen in people's lives. Mm. You know, it's very touching, actually. So I'll probably read something else by her. Anyway, amazing. Yeah. OK. Great. Hazel. Well, I've been reading um, a book which was the joint winner of the slightly foxed Best First Biography Uh Prize this year. And it's called The Go-Between by Osman Yusuf Sada. I think that's the way you pronounce it. Okay. And um, he grew up in the 80s in a sort of suburb of Birmingham, which was a kind of melting pot of all sorts of different nationalities. Um, His family were very strict. They came from the sort of borderlands between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And his mother had been brought over at only a few hours' notice, having been married to his father. And um, it's a very, very vivid picture of sort of growing up. I mean, the go-between is... He is a go-between, really, between the world of his mother. His mother was a sort of brilliant seamstress. But this was a very, very strict religious family, so women just were not allowed out. So all her clients came to her. It's an amazingly sort of vivid picture, first of all, of this little boy who was allowed into the sort of women's world until he was 12 or something. You know, he used to go out and get things for his mother and pick up exciting samples, and women would come to her, and, and he was a sort of spectator of all the gossip and things that went on, but their life was incredibly restricted, and the men were rather sort of distant, frightening, bearded folk. And, you know, his mother got beaten by his father, just as, almost as a matter of course. And it's about his growing up, and it was before any of this area kind of came up, and so there were red-light district down the road, contrasted with this extremely strict religious upbringing that they were having. It sounds fascinating. At one point, his father just takes the whole family out of school and they go back to where they came from. And and he sees his mother visiting the graves of her family and crying. And and he says, I suddenly understood her tears. Of course, you know, she cried a lot at home. You know, she was very sort of vigorous, vivid person who was completely... Caged. Caged. And the same was happening to his sisters. And it took him a long time, in a way, he he admits, to sort of realise how very constricting it was. And, of course, when he grew up, then he was expected to take part in this man's world. And things were becoming very violent then. You know, Thatcher was kind of talking about immigrants and there were sort of murders and so on. So it was scary. But he he made his escape and actually became a fashion designer. Uh, He's very successful and he's written books and exhibited at the Whitechapel and so on. Mm. So he made his escape. But it's a very, very sort of touching story. It's really a tribute to his mother, really, and how she survived. The name of the book again? It's called The Go-Between. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Hazel. Mm. I think that brings us to a close, really, for this episode. Uh, Laura, Andrew, thank you both very much indeed for being with us. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much.
a reminder that Laura's new book is called Ways of Life, Jim Eat and the Kettles Yard Artists, and it's out now. Head to the episode show notes on your podcast app or indeed the Fox website to find all the books and writers we've mentioned today. That's foxquarterly.com, where you can also subscribe to the Quarterly magazine if you'd like to join the thousands of readers worldwide who look forward to receiving it four times a year. A quick reminder that the first Kettles Yard podcast is episode 30. You can find it by following the link in the show notes to this episode or indeed by visiting the Slightly Foxed website. We'll be back in October. Until then, thanks for listening and for joining us for another literary trek off the beaten track. <laughs>